0: Um
1: how is my audio? Is it good?
0: Your audio is good. Okay, Sinead, are you taping?
2: I am indeed. Hello, everyone. We are here. Grant Cameron and I are here on Grant's channel with the extraordinary Shelley Joy, who we will be speaking to today. Shelley is one in a million, in our opinion, anyway. Um, She was born in Port of Spain in Trinidad on the Isle of Hummingbirds and has had the most amazing trajectory through life. And uh, we're very, very, very much looking forward to speaking to her today and learning from her. Just to give you a bit of a background on um, the very wide variety of things that Shelley has been learning about, working on, publishing, uh, and creating in her life. She has studied David Bohm and the intricate order, developed, she's written a book about developing supersensible perception. Uh, she's written books about the Holy Trinity, electromagnetic field theory, art, quantum physics and consciousness, psychedelics and perception, awareness and consciousness, string theory. She has dabbled in uh, psychonautic explorations. She has dabbled in LSD and ayahuasca. She has had some extraordinary experiences there that she's going to be speaking to us about. She is an accomplished painter. She's an accordion player. She built her own ham radio when she was 14 years old. She built her own isolation chamber for internal contemplation when she was uh, being mentored by uh, John Lilly. She has a PhD in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. She, has, she went to Rice University for, on a physics scholarship. She graduated with a BS in electrical engineering, a BSc in 1969, a master's in Indian philosophy. She studied Indian and Tibetan theories related to consciousness while living in New York City. And it just goes on and on and on. Shelly is really extraordinary. She has such an incredible depth and variety of information to uh, share with us today. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And hello, Grant as well. And Grant, please take it away. I know you're just chomping at the bit. We wanna ask Shelly all kinds of things today. Shelly, thank yeah. you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for inviting me,
0: yeah. Beautiful, uh, I guess we can start with um, sort of a little bit about your background, how you got into the world of the weird. And particularly um, when it gets to um, the experience you have with uh, entheogens, which um, both Sinead and I have spent a lot of time sort of researching. So, can you go sort of through your background and, and sort of give us a, a, an insight on how you got to do so much of this stuff? Because you basically start as a in, in science and you move from field to field. So go through that thing and you've got engineering background and tie it into uh, this world of the very strange and um, paranormal that we're all interested in.
1: Okay, well you want this in 10 words or less, I'm sure, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, the world of the weird, I like that phrase. Uh, I was born into a weird world for me. I, I'm, I'm transgender, so I, I lived as a a guy named Michael until I was about 50, and then I transitioned and for the last 20 years I've been Shelley, which is probably why I buried myself in studying things. I was trying to actually trying to find out <laughs> why I was so strange. and you know, nobody knew anything about it and I couldn't tell anyone. I, I tried to tell my parents at a very early age, but that didn't go over well. My dad was an Air Force colonel, and it didn't. So they convinced me I had to shut up and just be who they thought I was. Yeah. But um, I, uh, when I was really young, I I was uh, brought up as a Roman Catholic. So I went to a convent school when I was five or six in England, and um I remember the nun said, "If you if you pray real hard, you can talk to God, and and God will answer you." Well, I thought, okay. So I started my my life for prayer right then, saying. Why did you mess up so bad with me? Uh, and um, but seriously, I I uh, I was somewhat not antisocial, but um, you know the little girls wouldn't play with me. I wanted to play with them, and I didn't much like the little boys' games. And so, all through my my early career and education, I, I really focused on books and studying and trying to learn things. And um, I really think it's because of that condition I had that, um, that led me to not only study science. Because in the beginning, I thought science would really have the answer to everything. You know, if you can, if science can can make a television and radios, and you know, using invisible waves to communicate, uh, somewhere in all that science, there must be some way for me to resolve my issues. So. I I really got enamored of science and especially science fiction, too. I studied, uh, well, studied. I read a lot of science fiction as a kid and saw all the movies I could, and um, it it led me to, of course, getting interested in radio. Uh, My neighbor was a CIA communications officer. Uh, We lived near Washington, D.C., and he had a huge radio tower in his backyard, and of course, all the neighbors said he was messing up their television, but I thought it was really cool and then uh, our families got really close and he used to show me his ham radio equipment in the basement like all these things with glowing tubes and you could smell the ozone in the air and, and he would he would uh, tune in to radios and other continents and back then there was no internet of course so it was really amazing. And he talked me into learning Morse code when I was about 11 or 12. and um, He tutored me quite a bit. He was a a real good mentor. And I got very excited about radios because, you know, it was very science fiction-y that you could communicate with invisible waves, totally invisible, that no one could sense, and and send uh, uh, music and voices. And about that time, television was actually taking off. So even television. But, you know, I thought that scientists knew why things work. You know, and that's really a, 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 a not true. They don't know why things work. They, they know how things work because they examine things. They, they measure things in space time and they come up with the mathematics that helps them to d- develop new uh, uh, instruments to do things. But, you know, I, I was in a, my fourth year of electrical engineering uh, in a, an advanced class on electrophysiology of the nervous system. I really liked that class because the doctor, the uh, teacher was, had a PhD in electrical engineering, which I wanted to get. And he also had a medical degree. So I thought, wow, here's something really interesting. So I asked him, you know, I, I actually had been a hippie for a year or two by then. I had been taking uh, entheogens and, and smoking cannabis. And I was kind of a black sheep in the engineering department um, for a number of reasons. But I was really one of the best students. I got really good grades because I studied all the time. I didn't have much of a social life. So, um, you know, I, I asked him something I had thought about for a long time. I said, you know, we were studying electrophysiology of the nervous system. And what did he think about the idea that maybe the electricity running through our walls, the electric, electric uh, fields uh, all around us, and especially the power that's going through our walls through the circuits, what if it's aware? What if there's a certain awareness? Or consciousness in the electrical system. Well, there, the whole the class was small, about 10 kids, and there was a long pause. And finally, he said, You know, that's the kind of question we just can't ask in engineering. You need to study philosophy or go to a psychologist, and, and maybe they you know, have more information on that. Well, I, I eventually, I actually looked and I searched, but uh, no, nobody in psychology or, um, you know, they, nobody knew anything about consciousness or was interested in consciousness. And I was interested in consciousness because I wanted to understand why my consciousness told me that I was a girl. I was a woman, a, a girl back then, but, but why I was in a boy's body. There was a major mistake here. And uh, so I, I continued to study and learn. And, and I looked for places where I could study something about consciousness but couldn't find it. Until the people I was hanging out with who were artists um, got me interested finding in reading something about uh, aesthetics and philosophy and mysticism. And I realized when I read my first book, I think it was a book by Alan Watts on mysticism. And he was a very educated, uh, you know, really good writer, very articulate. And, and I realized that here um, was a whole area that, that scientists were really ignoring. And it was data, there was data there from all the mystics and saints and all of the writings and, and even, re, even conventional religions had been trying to explore this consciousness, these, these things, when scientists were really neglecting it, uh, it seemed to me. So um, it really all culminated, uh, I think my life's direction, my, the course direction of my life, um, the year before, the summer before my final engineering uh, year, um, I was in a five and a half year program. Electrical engineering takes a lot of uh, a lot of required courses you have to take, so I sort of spaced them out so I could take uh, English literature courses, which I liked too. I liked poetry and pretty much liked everything. I was trying to learn as much as I could to solve one of the main reasons was to solve my conundrum, or to try to understand myself, you know, um, because I couldn't find any answers anywhere else. And so, um, the summer before my final year, we went to California from Texas. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, and I was talked by my artist friends into taking LSD uh, and I, I, I probably wouldn't have done it as I was felt that I was kind of an engineer and scientist and I shouldn't do that because it's probably not a <laughs> I don't know what it was but I read in the Life magazine the front cover was many people claim to see God on LSD. I thought aha uh-huh. this might answer my question if I could if I could take this uh, LSD and, and converse with God somehow, maybe I could solve that deep inner problem that's been bugging me. And um, so we, took, we went up to San Francisco from Ventura where we lived and for the summer. Um, I was a, 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 pr- a apprentice computer programmer at the time at a naval missile range, Point Magoo. So we drove up to San Francisco to the Haight-Ashbury and it was, it was 1967. And uh, it was an amazing time to be alive. There were all kinds of things going on, but we managed to get uh, several little yellow tabs of what's called Owsley acid, which was uh, probably the purest uh, LSD at the time. And then we drove back down to Big Sur, and around nine in the evening, we we took we took it. I actually took two of them because I wanted to be sure I could see God, you know. <laughs> and so, wow. But I, I think I only needed one, but. But you know, I've always sort of pushed the envelope. And wow. Um, it was, uh, well, you, you, you both, I think, probably have experienced entheogens. It was really quite extraordinary, to say the yeah. least. And um, there was, uh, it was a place called Little Sur Creek, s- south of Big Sur. The creek actually comes out into the ocean there along Highway 1. And uh, before it goes into the ocean, it pools. It's like a really long, uh, wide, a very shallow pool of water, maybe, you know, 18 inches or uh, at the most two feet deep. So I found myself wandering and, you know, and seeing the stars reflected in the water below my feet. And then, you know, it was an exceptionally clear night, uh, moonless night. So, and there was no fog, which is unusual. So it's just a million stars above and even stars reflected in the water. And Um, As you may know, LSD takes you to very sort of cosmic dimensions that um, people don't normally even suspect are there. Well, the the next day, um, coming coming down, I realized that this is a whole area that I haven't seen anything in Scientific American talking about it, you know, consciousness. Um, And I thought, this is really the cutting edge of science. It's like, you know, where, where uh, the early voyagers uh, going across the Atlantic were worried about going off the end of the world and finding a new world. For science, uh, this was like a whole world that needed to be explored using scientific tools and methods because God knows what, you know, uh, dovetailing into all my science fiction books I had read. I mean, this might be the secret to telepathy, to uh, interspecies communication, mm-hmm. to, uh, all, all kinds of things. So. So I, that really, um, I think, charted the course of the rest uh, rest of my life because ever since I've been uh, exploring consciousness, and I continued to explore entheogens. Um, back in school, uh, we go out on weekends into the into the f- nearby forests in in Texas and try different things like um, psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, we we actually had a lot of peyote because. Uh, the local the local um, uh, in Austin where I was living at the time there were a lot of uh, they, they sold peyote basically at the nurseries, the nurseries where they had all kinds of plants for your garden they had all kinds of cactus plants and uh, people I hung out with pretty soon realized that there was peyote among those plants and they sold peyote's buttons so So I got involved in that and I also actually um, managed to experience the Native American church a couple of times. So this all drew me not only into entheogenic exploration but into religions and philosophy. And um, I think I mentioned it took me five and a half years to finish my uh, electrical engineering uh, bachelor of science because I started taking courses in philosophy and and, um, and actually uh, English literature. I found English literature was more y- useful. I was reading the romantic poets. I took a really good course on, on Byron, Shelley and Keats and they were talking about all the things that almost I could experience with entheogens. Um, so let's see, I, I went to uh, New York with my friends um, and we started, uh, my two friends were artists and actually I was married to one, but um, I finally told them about my, my gender issues. So the three of us hung together and they wanted to become famous artists, I guess. And so they started dragging me to the, the, the nightclubs where the artists hung out on Union Square, in Max's Kansas City. We'd show up around 11 at night and, and all the so-called action would begin around midnight. And a lot of people would show up. And I was a very shy person at the time, I I still am kind of shy because I had something to hide, and I I Mm -hmm. felt that I didn't want people to know my condition. Mm -hmm. However, I found myself surrounded by a lot of transgender people, (laughs) and they were pretty overt and didn't seem to care about it. Wow, Um, that's very interesting. And then we started. uh, they started going to the factory on the other side of Union Square, uh, I think 32 Union Square, it it was uh, Andy Warhol's factory. And I got to meet Andy, and uh, eventually I started consulting for him. He, he was—he thought I was really strange, because even though he's surrounded by a lot of freaky people, I get the feeling that he thought I was a freak, because here I was, I and mean, I was wearing velvet pants and stuff, because I was with artists, but uh, but they, they told him that I had an electrical engineering degree, and I was really kind of shy, and I think I was cute, too, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So he... Uh, he hired hired me. Well, he he would never pay people much. He would he would get people to help. He was very good at motivating people and getting them all enthused. So I became his lighting consultant. I was at the time I was working in the World Trade Center as a lighting engineer. Uh, you know, I I was sort of the interface between electrical engineering and and lights for the airports, uh, lighting control systems. And he needed to know someone who knew about lights because of the lights he used for his films. And he was trying to get into uh, television. Uh, he wanted to have an Andy Orhol show, I guess, or something. Anyway, I, I started painting about that time because you, know, you can't hang around people who are painting all the time and not wanna sort of do it yourself to get the experience. And I really found that I loved it. I just fell in love with painting and I took a bunch of watercolors I did to show to Andy and he really liked them. He said, can I have those? He would always ask people for things. He, would, he was a collector, I guess. And I thought, oh, sure. And I thought, oh, maybe he'll give me one of his silk screens, you know, and I'll get rich. <laughs> but, but that didn't work out too well. But he did say, he said, I, he said, I think you should, can you continue to, um, to paint? And so I actually split up with my, uh, my two friends and got my own loft and I started painting and trying to learn as much as I could about painting. But it was more than just painting. It was learning about consciousness because what I would do was take a little, I would microdose with LSD um, and sometimes with, with mushrooms, and I would paint. I would have the whole weekend to paint just by myself uh, being slightly uh, powered by, by entheogens. And it was amazing because the way I painted, I used, um, I, I put the canvas flat on the, on the loft floor, uh, like really large canvases, and I used heat lamps and I, I propped up different parts of the canvas so it would act sort of like geology and I would pour the paint on and watch it move, watch gravity move it. So I realized I was painting with gravity and I would use the heat lamps to dry up the oceans, you know, like the, there's a pool of blue or uh, one color of, 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 of pigment mixed with water and I would, I would dry it up and then I would start experimenting like mixing uh, to, soap to change the viscosity or salt, put a lot of salt into something and our baking soda. So I, I felt like I was sort of a scientist experimenting with creation. And, it, you know, when you're taking LSD and painting, I, I have to tell you, at least to me back then, you almost feel like you're a little god, a little deity, creating a whole universe uh, and, and letting the energy of the universe flow through you into the paint and into the painting. And then, of course, after the painting dried, after a few days, uh, it was just amazing to just stare at it for a long time and, and uh, smoke a little cannabis. And <laughs> I was sort of a recluse. I lived by myself in that loft for a couple of years. Uh, before, I, I, I was also studying consciousness by going to workshops. And that's how I met John Lilly. Uh, I had met him once in California um, at, the, uh, at the Navy base where I was working as a programmer. He had brought his porpoises. He had shut down his uh, research with porpoises in the in the West Indies. He'd been working on what he called interspecies communication, and he was trying to communicate with porpoises, human porpoise intercommunication. But he ran out of uh, money. The, the National uh, Science Foundation stopped supporting him, and so he he uh, had this he decided to. Um, sell his porpoises. Well, I think the government talked him into it, uh, uh, transferring his porpoises to the Navy, and they were going to train the porpoises to take mines into the Vietnam Hai Pong Harbor and mine the ships there, which uh, I thought was a terrible idea, and so did he, but he was sort of in a quandary. So anyway, I would go out at lunch down to the pier. We were on the beach, the, the Navy base, and I would take lunch breaks, and I saw this guy talking to the porpoises. And finally, I went over and introduced myself and said, I'm a programmer here, I'm an engineering student, and why are you talking to porpoises? And so he introduced himself, and we talked for a while, and I found out he was also a ham radio enthusiast. He liked radios a lot, but he also was interested in communicating with not only porpoises, but other entities, which he was doing by taking ketamine. And... um, well, wow. can I just
2: ask Shelley, what, when was this? Was this during the 60s still? Because I know you started painting in 1965. Yes, yes. Okay, and, and you're in New
1: York at this point, right? Well, when I met him in, in California, it was 1967. It okay. Actually, the summer okay. of love. it was actually the peak of the hippie movement. So I, uh, then in 1969, I moved to New York after I graduated in 69. Okay. And so I went to a workshop with him and he had just come back from um, Chile where he'd been studying with Oscar Ichazo. I think it was called Araka (coughs) was the movement, was the the, uh, sort of a mystical modern way of um, changing your consciousness. Uh, But they all used entheogens too, because I mean, entheogens certainly fuel any kind of mystical research, I suppose. And um, so he, at the time in New York, he was getting involved in designing uh, anechoic chambers, Actually, the more than just anecho- anechoic means soundproof. They were um, sensory deprivation chambers, he called them. And it, they would have warm water that was just a couple of degrees below a human temperature, like about 95 degrees. You would float in this salt water in a really, really totally quiet, uh, totally lightproof uh, kind of a booth, um, like a large washing machine, I guess, <laughs> maybe bigger than that. and. And he would uh, he would take his his favorite uh, entheogen was ketamine, which is a little bit like uh, um, uh, speed, I suppose, but also has more psychotropic properties. So I I talked with him and I had a loft where I had been painting, and I wanted to start to make my own uh, sensory deprivation chamber in which I would meditate. And I had also been studying with a, a Tibetan, a young Tibetan. Tulku, his name was cho Trungpa Tulku, who later founded Naropa, the uh, graduate school in Colorado. And I started being sort of a Trungpa groupie, I would I would um, go to his retreats in Barnett, he had a place in Barnett, Vermont, and I would go to all his uh, lectures. But um, <clears throat> I was trying at the time to visualize a, a Tibetan Tonka, one of their uh, ways of, um uh, uh, strengthening your consciousness and is by visualizing a visual uh, image, uh, a tanka of a Tibetan saint or some symbolic uh, image. And so I uh, f- I made an anechoic chamber or, or a, a soundproof, light proof, pretty much uh, by rolling up a lot of um, very large canvases that I use for painting. And he helped me, he said that he, by using uh, empty egg crates, that helped quite a bit. So I, I, uh, that's, I began doing a similar thing that he did. I would take a micro dose and go into this light-proof, sound space to meditate. And uh, one Easter, I actually freaked myself out a little bit because I'm from Trinidad. I, I was born there, and I only lived there for about a year. But um, I was really interested in voodoo as something that might change your consciousness. I was also interested in magic for a while. Uh, I lived near uh, Samuel Fields' bookstore on the Lower East Side, uh, if anybody knows about Fields Bookstore, that's where they had all kinds of books he brought in from uh, different religions and the occult and Madame Blavatsky and anthroposophy and everything. So I spent weekends finding books in Weiser's, and uh, some of them were on voodoo. So I uh, decided this one Easter Lent, um, for 40 days I decided I wouldn't have any electricity in my loft. I would, at night, I would just use candles. And strangely enough, I found a skull in, in a, a closet in the loft. There was a strange closet in the loft. And when I was moving in, I found a, a skull in the upper area of the closet on a shelf. Wow. And, yeah, so I put the skull between a couple of candles. Oh my God. And, um, and I used to meditate and I would listen to, uh, I got records that are recordings of original voodoo Ceremonies from the West Indies. Uh, you can actually check out records, uh, vinyl records from the uh, New York Public Library, which I did. Well, at one point, uh, I suddenly got really scared. I mean, uh, the hair on the back of my neck—I mean, uh, all over—kind of got electrified. I was—I I realized that I maybe was experimenting with things I shouldn't because
0: mm-hmm.
1: I just got sort of freaked out, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, blew out all the candles and put the lights on and decided maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't go in that direction. Wow. So the direction I did go was pretty much into uh, Indian yoga, uh, Asian yoga and Tibetan Vajrayana, a uh, combination of Tibetan and Indian uh, uh, practices and traditions. And um, I think I meant to, to talk about Alan Watts. How I got from New York to San Francisco to study Indian philosophy was I went to a workshop with Alan Watts. And I had really loved reading Alan Watts. I read all of the books of his I could find, including his his biography, which he, he wrote, a very nice biography. I forget the name of it. But uh, then I heard there was a workshop he was having, a three-day workshop. So I signed up for the workshop, and I, I loved the workshop. It was uh You know, he read from some of his books, and we talked a lot. There were about 12 people. But during one of the day's lunch, I said, I really want to study Sanskrit and Asian philosophy. And i have been buying a lot of books and reading them. He said, you know what? I've just uh, been associated with a school in San Francisco, and it's a graduate school now. They just got their graduate program figured out. And you should write off for a catalog for them, because it would be an ideal place for you to study comparative mysticism. So I was working on the 64th floor of the World Trade Center at the time as an engineer. And on weekends, I was painting and meditating and going to you know lectures and workshops on consciousness and mysticism. Well, of course, back then, the, there wasn't much about consciousness except for except for. Uh, you know, a few, very few scientists seem to have gone into mysticism or consciousness, yeah. except maybe Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, you know. <laughs> um, they were kind of my heroes at the time, too. So um, so I did. I, I, I got very excited about, uh, about leaving engineering and going to San Francisco and seriously studying uh, Sanskrit. I guess the reason I wanted to study Sanskrit was to study Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Uh, in, in all the books I had found, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras seemed to be the, the most clear, concise, and organized uh, book on different stages and states of meditation. And, and you know, I was still a nerd trying to study things, and I thought, you know, this is, this is something I, I really should try to understand. So, I, I found myself getting two or three different translations by different people. And I was shocked that the translations could be so divergent, so different. Like, you know, one, shlo, uh, you know, Yoga somebody would say it means absolute cessation of thinking. The other would say uh, attenuating the, the mind. And, and they used uh, English words in a very loose way. That often it didn't seem to me to correlate with the Sanskrit. So I really wanted to study Sanskrit. Of course my father who had retired to Texas at the time, an Air Force Colonel, he was pretty down on that idea. But I said (laughs) he thought I was going to ruin my career. (laughs) Um, So but I did. I I applied and was accepted and uh, eventually I moved to California to study Indian philosophy. The other thing was I wanted to find a guru Uh, A lot of things I read said you had to have a guru. I was a little suspicious of that because I thought, you know, who would, who was the first guru's guru? Mm -hmm. So there must be, you know, you must be able to learn from books. Eventually, I, I found something that Rudolf Steiner said very nicely that, you know, your teacher can be a book. Teacher doesn't have to be a human being. It can be a book. A teacher can even be yourself if, you know, if you're, if you're lucky and you're sincere and you you observe yourself. Uh, I think Gurdjieff said the same thing, So, um, but I thought I would, I really wanted to find a community of people who were sincerely looking to develop and evolve their consciousness uh, uh, using traditional ways, uh, maybe antigens, and also a science. So I thought, you know, this was the cutting edge of, uh, of, of everything to me, um, so I did. I I applied and I went there and, and got involved in the school. And uh, I, after about a year or two, I found that gurus, the modern gurus, are not really very helpful. They sort of seems like when they get a little, little bit of power, it goes to their head, you know. And the Indian gurus are sleeping with all of the their female uh, devotees. Yes. And and it just uh, something was not serious about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I just studied real hard, and I wrote my, my master's thesis on the history, philosophy, and practice of Tantra in India. Um, I guess the reason I picked Tantra was because one of the main tenets of, of many of the Tantras is to unite the male and female within your own consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I felt that somehow I had that, or something was trying to do that in me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got really interested in, in, in Tantra, and I was... Kind of shocked when, I, as I learned more about tantra, it was it's more about dealing with energies and the alchemy of uh, of the energies of consciousness, uh, much more than just physical sex. And most of the uh, tantric workshops being offered in California back then, and even now, are mo- mainly focused on physical sex, not not what tantra really is. I mean, that's just like one one small part of it. Um, It's maybe it's similar to the way that people who say yoga they think yoga is a physical exercise. You know, when they when they say yoga, almost I would say ninety five percent of Americans would think, oh yeah, it's that physical exercise where you stretch. It's not. If you read Patanjali's yoga, um, the physical exercise is is uh, uh, asana is only one of the eight eight parts of, of of yoga. And the real goal of yoga is to is to be able to develop your consciousness through different levels so you begin to perceive and communicate with other dimensions of consciousness all the way up to uh what i call the implicate order the uh the the ground of consciousness which um the physicist david Bohm thought that he actually i have a good quote that i use a lot David Bohm is a, uh, a physicist who said, consciousness is basically in the implicate order. So uh, I, I, I've told you quite a bit of my ba- Oh, well, I, I, eventually I met another student uh, in the graduate school after I had graduated with my master's degree. And we got married and had a son and a daughter and moved to uh, Abcake, Saudi Arabia, where we lived for 20 years in the desert. Wow, it turned out to be a great place to meditate because it's really quiet there. Um, I would get up early in the morning and I had to go downstairs and turn off the uh, the air conditioning system, and because then it would be totally quiet in the house. And um, I was able to read a lot too in, in Saudi Arabia, and um, and finally, I we came back uh, in uh, I think it was about 1999. And we to San Francisco, and I started uh, painting a lot more, trying to get into a gallery. And uh, then I uh, entered a, a master of fine arts program at JFK University, and I, I wasn't interested in the studio art because I'd been painting by then for also, for thirty years. So I had my own my own ideas about painting and the style I was in, which is like painting with gravity is what I did. Um, and, but I was really fascinated by the philosophy. Uh, we had a philosophy, two philosophy courses we had to take in aesthetics and I loved reading philosophy. So one of the, uh, the librarian there had just gotten his PhD from the California Institute of Integral Studies, which actually had been my own, my old school. It was formerly named the California Institute of Asian Studies, but now it was the California Institute of Integral Studies. So I sent out for catalog to them and I read some things about Brian Swim and uh, some of the other professors there and I applied for a, a PhD program. So I, 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 I jumped from an MFA program to a PhD program. I've always been a sucker for degrees. So um, that's why I've, when I read mystics, uh, if I find a mystic who has a, a higher degree, a PhD or something, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to read them more carefully than, than others. But anyway, that's just my own prejudice, I suppose. So uh, I was studying. Um, I finished all my coursework. Um, and this was about uh, 20, 2012, I guess. And I had to start writing my dissertation. So I wanted to be somewhere where I could meditate and be very quiet. And I managed to find a, a little cedar cabin where I live now up uh, near Mount uh, Lassen in the Southern Cascades. It's the very far northeastern part of California. And I'm up around 4,500 feet It's in the forest. It's very quiet here. And I brought all my books, and I kept acquiring more books. Um, thank God for Amazon. We get books at that on demand almost. And... Um, I was able to really go in depth into what I was always interested in was, what is consciousness? And what are the what are the c- connections uh, with science, with all of the tools of science that we know and understand? How can we begin to understand what consciousness is? Because really, uh, modern science has almost no uh, good theories of consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then I started reading Carl Pribram, who had been working on trying to find the source of memory. And I discovered that he worked together with David Bohm, the physicist, for the last uh, 10 years of, of, of David Bohm's life. And David Bohm even started having dialogues with Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti, of course, is the, he was supposed to be the, the new avatar that the theosophists put forward, but, but quite an amazing mystic himself and quite articulate. So David Bohm wanted to learn more about mysticism and, and the mind. And Krishnamurti wanted to learn more about physics and how quantum physics might inform him about the mind. And they started having dialogues together. Um, and uh, you can actually have a lot of books and uh, YouTube videos of them. And I, I, try, I started reading the, all the source material that David Bohm uh, wrote. On consciousness and his theory of the implicate order, and I just, I just, uh, my mind just flashed with understanding for the first time that this really, really does make sense. And um, there's Bohm's idea was that the whole world is divided into two, the the entire universe. In fact, he wrote a book, a very good book called Wholeness and the Implicate Order, Wholeness with a W. He was interested in the whole that. he was very critical of uh, engineers and physicists who didn't seem to care uh, uh, to, to try to understand the ontological meaning behind science, behind their physics and their equations. Their main objective was to get the equations to work, so they could predict the results of experiments and and design devices. You know, like iPhones and atom smashers and and things like that. And uh, I mean, as an engineer, I was always, always, I was always uh, sympathetic with using science to develop new, new equipment. But uh, working on my PhD, I was more interested in the ontology of things. Why? Why, uh, what, what is the universe? What is this whole thing? So Baum actually showed the mathematics that worked that showed that the universe uh, has two major domains. One is, one is space-time which he called the explicate order. And space consists of three dimensions. You know, if you look at a a graph, a three-dimensional graph, you'll see three axes at 90 degrees to one another. There's x, y, and z coordinates. And uh, time is one dimension because time goes in one direction. So space-time covers four dimensions. And pretty much modern science is built on examining space-time. But quantum mechanics uh, started, they started doing these uh, particle accelerator experiments that they couldn't get the math of space time to really predict uh, the results of the quantum mechanics experiments. They were were getting all kinds of data that eventually showed that there were more dimensions than just four. And this, uh, this led to the development of what's called string theory in the 80s and then M theory a little bit later. And what string theory says is that there are 11 different distinct dimensions. That means that every dimension is is a different dimension, but the reality has to have 11 dimensions. And I, I think M theory says there's 12. And then there's been some eccentric scientists who say there's even more dimensions than that. But they say that these extra dimensions uh, in fact, they've given them some strange names, like, well, actually, one, one of the dimensions is called strange. Uh, <laughs> so they, they say they're very, very small dimensions. And instantly that raised a flag in, in my own mind, because how can you, you know, small is only something that has to do with space. So, you know, if it's not, if it's not part of space, how can you even say it's small? Well, David Bohm's mathematics uh, started proving, uh, showing how he could uh, predict a lot of the experiments that were coming out of particle physics. But it, it postulated that there was a dimension or a region of reality called the, he called it the implicate order. And uh, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit to, to tell you that I, I believe the implicate order is the same region of reality that uh, in Vedanta is called Brahma. Uh, The Buddhists, I think, call it the void. Uh, Western religions tend to call it God. So uh, the implicate order, David Bohm said, begins at a very small dimension uh, below 10 to the minus 35 meters. So I'll I'll explain that. In order for quantum, the father of quantum physics uh, Max Planck, back in a- 1898, he solved a, uh, a huge problem that people were having with dealing with thermodynamics and heat by proposing that that space and time were not linear. In, in other words, space and time um, jumped. They're some kind of digital. they they're they're not uh, smooth. So what I mean by not smooth is like if you look at a if you looked really uh, with a magnifying uh, glass on the, on the pixels of your monitor, you would see that it's made up of a lot of little dots, you know, little pixels. But because they're very, very small and they stream by so fast, it gives you the illusion that they're, that they're, they're connected, that they're linear, that they're continuous. Well, they're not continuous. They're separate little dots. And so uh, uh, the idea in quantum mechanics is that Space stops at ten to the minus thirty-five meters; that there's no no space below that, and time also is granular. Time is uh, there are ten to the forty-four ticks per second. That's it's a huge number. It's it's I mean our uh, our computers run at like ten to the ten to the fourteenth maybe at the most. So ten to the forty-four is an enormously uh, smaller granules of time and space. So if you imagine at the bottom of space, I have some diagrams, which maybe we can show uh, somewhere else, but they're in my books, the diagrams that show that if you if you shrink down like Alice in Wonderland, and you get smaller and smaller. Uh, it, you can't continue. You, you reach the point where you're down to the 10 to the minus 35 meters and you can't get any smaller. So David Bohm said if, if you take a little tiny uh, micro black hole and the diameter of that is 10 to the minus 35 meters, within that sphere, that little micro black hole sphere, there is no space, there's no space dimension. But within that tiny, tiny micro black hole are the other 11 or 12 dimensions uh, that, are, that are posited by string theory that make quantum mechanics work. So there's the explicate order, which is our space and time, which uh, Isaac Newton and all of our scientists even now are mostly uh, measuring things in. They measure space and they measure time in their experiments, and they make sure that the experiment can be repeated, and they come up with mathematical equations that map space-time. But in sub-quantum, below the quantum uh, mechanical level, there's the implicate order. and. Boehm uh, showed through a model, a mathematical model, uh, he, he, wrote a, he wrote the textbook on quantum theory, by the way, in, in 1951, I think. So he was a really, really brilliant quantum uh, mathematician. He showed that, that space, uh, t- space-time is, is um, projected from within the implicit order. So down there, at very, very tiny, tiny dimensions below below the level that, where space-time exists, within the implicate order, uh, there's some kind of reality that that projects the universe outward. And at the same time, all of the information within the universe, all of the data, the information of things moving in space and time, they are projected back into the implicate order. So there's it's a two-way thing. Uh, you can also visualize it by the yin-yang symbol. The yin-yang symbol, uh, uh, is, is the symbol of Taoism? Many people say, and it shows that there's two regions, and they're sort of swirling into one another. So this actually correlates with uh, everything we know about quantum mechanics right now. Um, the whole idea that uh, scientists for a long time were really concerned, because as information goes into a black hole, it's they say it's lost to the universe. They say, why is all this information is lost? As information flows into a black hole from outside, it'll never come back into the universe. But actually, it correlates very well with the the, the Vedantic idea of the Akasha. Um, The Akasha is supposed to be this this, this sort of a timeless, spaceless place where all of the information of the universe uh, is stored up. And it's out of that uh, implicate order, or akasha, I I equate the two, out of that, that the universe is projected. And according to the mathematics of David Bohm, the universe is projected many, many, many times a second. It's like a digital universe. 10 to the 44 clicks per second. When we say per second, it's one of our seconds. We're human beings, and we're actually enormously huge compared to... The, uh, the little tiny implicate order spheres, the hollow spheres, that, that, uh, that are the bedrock of the universe, and out of which consciousness projects the universe and views the universe um, as a whole. So, you know, it's hard to put this in words because I have a 300-page book that describes it with 61 diagrams. <laughs> uh, and actually, I just finished publishing my 15th book. What I've tried to do in all my books is write the books so that people don't need to understand calculus uh, or even, you know, even trigonometry. Well, trigonometry might help, but I try to make it so that the average educated high school, college, say American, would be able to understand it. Uh, I try to explain things with diagrams and visual diagrams and words without using mathematics. So people can get a flavor uh, and visualize what's going on.
0: Can I ask a question in terms of um, the implicate, the expert of order in terms of your basic worldview? So do you see consciousness as primary, which creates the physical world? Because a lot of this stuff, like with string theory, it seems to be, it still has nouns, like certain number of dimensions, strings, Uh, you know granular this that it seems very sort of left brain so in terms of the people like for example now Deepak Chopra or I don't know if you studied Donald Hoffman where they're saying uh, there basically is no time and space there's everything is in action inside consciousness and in terms of that what's your worldview in terms of defining consciousness um, intuition uh, noetic material and where are you when you're in a, a a state, say an LSD state, where are you? How does the mind fit into this worldview of say David Bohm and 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 consciousness?
1: Well, uh, consciousness is primary, and I I agree. You know, being a nerd, I've read all kinds of um, all kinds of Indian philosophy books. Of course, I got a degree in that, and then um, and Hoffman and I try to read everything I can. And I, I, I search for correlations uh, where things, um, where maps, if you put one map over another map where the, 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 the patterns coincide. So if, 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 if things uh, make sense in one subject uh, and you find a similar pattern in another subject, I tend to, to believe that there's some credibility there. So I, I would say. Uh, going back to say uh, philosophy, Western philosophy, I would be a panpsychist. Panpsychism is uh, believing that everything has an element of consciousness, that consciousness is the bed root of the universe. Um, one thing I criticize a lot uh, and mention in my books is that, you know, the modern neurophysicists and, and uh, neuroscience is looking for consciousness uh, as a derivative of activity of neurons in the brain, the, the nervous system, and many people uh, in, in those fields still believe that consciousness is an epiphenomena. It's something that just emerged out of the activity of, of neurons, and it was a maybe a lucky thing, but it, it, it wasn't designed, it was just uh, something that happened by accident. Well, that sounds superstitious to me, I have to say, um, because Everything is so amazingly, intricately designed in a, in a way that, uh, you know, there's got to be something that's not just serendipitous. Uh, accidental things don't seem to happen in that way. And so I and many, many philosophers have, have uh, advocated panpsychism, that there's a basic um, underlying substructure of the universe is, is consciousness. And of course, David Bohm, going back to him, he said, consciousness is in the implicate order, and it's projecting, it's a one, consciousness is one, because, well, he wrote wholeness and the implicate order, he believed that there's one primary consciousness, and it is projecting the universe out from the implicate order into the explicate order, and um, each one of us have what we think is consciousness. But you, you can think of it in uh, the analogy or the metaphor might be a colander. You know, a colander that you put your lettuce uh, yep. in and it has, it's, a, it's a hemispherical bowl that has many, many holes in it. Well, you can think of the one consciousness as being the lettuce in the middle of the colander. And each one of us is a, is a consciousness stream coming out of a separate hole. So we think we're separate, but we're really not. We're... Were ways for that one consciousness to examine itself and to enjoy itself uh, from different perspectives. Each one of us is a different perspective, and and not just each one of us as human beings, but but every. Um, uh, I think it was was it was it Leibniz uh, the idea of the of the plenum, the plenum that there's a uh, a plenum of. Uh, like this, substrate of the whole of all of reality is this infinite plenum of little tiny spheres, and they would be equivalent to Bohm's uh, uh, micro black holes, the little hollow spheres that have a diameter of 10 to the minus 35 meters. So I've got some illustrations of these in my books that at the very bedrock of of reality are these are these, you know, infinite number of tiny, tiny Uh, centers. You could call them a center also, because from each center, the universe is projected outward. And not only is the universe projected outward, but that consciousness is looking out from the center into the universe that it's projecting. And uh, what really constitutes this in science, verifies it in a way, is the whole idea of the hologram. Because uh, the idea of a hologram is that you have Electromagnetic fields are, are, are coming out from different points and intersecting. And where they intersect, the, the, uh, the flux becomes uh, deeper and starts to create forms. And these forms create things like what we call uh, protons and electrons and atoms. And these atoms form molecules and these molecules form uh, structures, uh, crystalline structures. and non christian instructors, and all the way up that the, the universe is being projected by a conscious entity that, that many religions call God. And uh, I think Buddhism calls the void. And it's a place where, 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 where yogis and uh, mystics and shamans actually go. They can actually resonate with it. And that's the whole goal of medita- learning to meditate and develop contemplative skills is to be able to resonate with the implicate order, with these much, much uh, lower, higher energy regions of of reality. Shelley, may
2: I ask you a question about this, actually, Um, because I'm very interested in your view of cosmology, Um, you know, I do know a bit about the shamanic path. I'm on the shamanic path myself, although very, very early in. And so I have just started the study of cosmology. And I'm very interested in your understanding of cosmology in connection to what you just said, because that is kind of uh, on the shamanic path anyway. That's what helps us understand where the shamans go and, and what that space is about and how t- we can utilize it here in this dimension. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Well, yes, I can. Uh, uh, it opens up the whole idea of... Uh of tuning, T-U-N-I-N-G. Uh, the first book I wrote after, um, after my dissertation was was called Tuning the Mind, The Geometry of Consciousness. And uh, it has to do with, you know, with, uh, we can tune our consciousness to other frequencies. When I say frequencies, um, this has to do with the, the consciousness having a really strong electromagnetic field component. Uh, in fact, my most recent book, which probably they sent to you, is the electromagnetic brain, EM field theories on the nature of consciousness. Um, it's the electromagnetic fields that uh, that project holographic images into space time. And part of be- being a, a mystic or a shaman or a yogi is, or just a, you know, a modern neo uh, liberal contemplative, I suppose is learning to tune your mind into other regions, other dimensions. Um, when I say other dimensions, it's, uh, the analogy is like this. You know, uh, radios, uh, people used to drive their car and they would tune the radio stations. People say tune the radio stations. You would turn a knob and you would actually change the receiving frequency of, of the radio waves. Uh, all of the stations are coming through at the same time. In fact, uh, every radio station right now is going through each one of us right now. Uh, we can't get the information from it unless we build a radio with circuits that have uh, filters that filter out everything but a s- one frequency, a small frequency range, and that we call a channel. So in that channel, uh, the information we want to look at would be like, you know, say we have a CNN channel, <laughs> for instance. but. Um, in radios, it's even more pure because you're just dealing with electromagnetic fields that, uh, that go through everything. Um, I, I, I think you mentioned I built a radio station when I was 12. I, I was a ham radio licensed. Uh, my neighbor got me into it. And I, I, I still think it's amazing how radio waves work uh, and radios work. Um, right now, the big thing in amateur radio or ham radio is using your computer with radio waves. Um, you, you hook up your computer to a transceiver. A transceiver is a radio that not only receives, and but it also transmits electromagnetic fields. So there's a big, uh, it's almost a hobby right now. Well, you could say it's a hobby, but uh, it's uh, people are trying to tr- communicate with as low power as possible. It's 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 been going on for about 10 years in amateur radio. They're seeing how far can I communicate with someone at a really low wattage, really? Mm-hmm. So um, it's called QRP. And I have a, a radio that, uh, that sends out five watts of electromagnetic energy. Well, five watts is the same as a flashlight. You know, when you turn on a flashlight, and I, I mean an ordinary flashlight, not the powerful ones, <laughs> So the light from a flashlight going out is electromagnetic radiation. Uh, it's in the visible range. But you could pick any range, any range, to send out five watts. And uh, my little five-watt uh, transceiver uses the computer to, uh, to, to, to detect and decode very sophisticated algorithms. Um, it, the, the software was developed to detect uh, signals bounced off the moon. That's another thing that ham radio operators like to do is bounce their radio signal off the moon, and uh, several minutes later, they get the signal back. And they actually communicate with each other by moon bounce. But they, to do that, they have to use this very sensitive uh, software that runs in the computer really fast to decode the signals. Well, I, I've been able to communicate, uh, I made a uh, communication with um, using 5 watts, with a Soviet, well not Soviet, it's Russian now, the Russian Antarctica uh, base, uh, they, they have ham radio operators that, uh, that you know for their spare time, they try to communicate with people in the outside world. So I've actually carried on uh, conversations using my computer and five watts. So my antenna is sending out five watts, it gets all the way to the Antarctic, they decode it, and then they send me back a signal. Well, you know, the human heart puts out five watts. Every heartbeat that you do, your heart puts out five watts of what? Of electromagnetic energy. And people don't realize that um, because they get mixed up with the terminology. Even scientists, I've noticed, get really mixed up. They use the word heat, H-E-A-T, heat and warmth. Well, heat is a human way of sensing uh, uh, electromagnetic radiation, in the infrared frequency range, in other words, there's a certain channel of electromagnetic waves that is called infrared. It's 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 a little bit below red. That's why they call it infrared. Infra means below. So th- there's a certain uh, several channels of, of 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 light, of electromagnetic radiation, which is light that we can see. You know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, but the Just below, the, the red that we can see is infrared. You can't see it. However, you can see it with a, uh, with a night vision goggles that the military hands out to, to snipers and, and soldiers. Um, you put on a night vision goggle and these special optical detectors tune into the infrared channel and pick up the infrared that's coming off of a human being from a mile or two away. So every human being is radiating electromagnetic energy. And it peaks in the infrared. Although when I say peak, there's a lot of frequency channels right next to it that the human body is still putting out. So you know, I, I realize that our heart's putting out five watts of energy is no different than my little uh, my my computer, my uh, computer and my radio that I transmit five watts of information to, to Antarctica from Northern California. So what that implies is incredible. That means that we probably are capable of communicating with one another uh, through the radiation given off by our body, by our hearts. Wow, Shelly,
2: this is incredible. I have to jump in here. I, I am so fascinated. I mean, I could just listen to you. Literally for days, my heart is pounding because I'm so excited. You are just lighting my brain up in all these different ways that are really making me happy. And I think Grant is probably having the same experience. This is so fantastic. Well, you know, I just want to jump in because you're talking about, uh, you're sort of alluding to, you know, electromagnetic theory or talking about electromagnetic theory. And that, that reminds me of what you said when we were emailing back and forth prior to this interview. You said that um, you had changed your view of electromagnetic theory after you had your UFO experience in 1968 in Texas when you were 21 years old. And I'm wondering if you can please talk about that because I'm very curious to know if that has anything to do, you know, what created this UFO experience? What were you experimenting with radio there? Were you, were you experimenting with uh, uh, you know, the heart consciousness, the electromagnetic field that emits from the heart? What was going on and, and what was the experience? What happened? We're, we're really uh, dying to know
1: about that as well. Well, yeah, okay, sure, I'll do that. I'll just, uh, just finish the last thought with that. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who I, I know is quite an amazing guy. And he's been dismissed by scientists because he talks about consciousness, um, and he is a scientist. He he wrote a book called "The Sense of Being Stared At," about how your people's dogs know they're coming from miles away, and I think that has to do with the the heart, uh, the infrared, uh, the, the the energy that's going out all around the world. You know these these signals, radio signals, go around the entire world uh, at the speed of light. So it's. Um, It's a common phenomena, and people use it for shortwave radio. But uh, back to your question, Uh, yes, I think I mentioned how I asked one of my professors um, who had a degree, in uh, a medical degree, and we were studying electrophysiology of the nervous system, and I asked him, what if the electromagnetic fields in our wires in our house are aware, have some kind of awareness, a distributed consciousness, that means a throughout the whole world, there might be this network of awareness in our walls without our realizing it, you know, and we think it's just charging our batteries and running our machines, but maybe it's watching us, <laughs> or maybe it's ourself watching ourselves, you know, but um, th- okay, the experience that I had in Austin, um, when I, I was, uh, this was about a year, the summer after I had my first experience with entheogens, I had come back And I was studying for my my last year in electrical engineering. And um, I was studying some really esoteric things like uh, laser communication theory and things. But we would still, we would go out, uh, especially in the summer, it gets really hot in Austin. And so we would drive out to uh, Hamilton's Pool. It's called Hamilton Pool, about 30 or 40 miles from Austin in the hill country. And there are all kinds of legends in the hill country that there's wood choppers that come out and they chop people up at night. You know, the, I think that started the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre uh, <laughs> series. But, um, but anyway, we, were, we went out to Hamilton's Pool because it's this beautiful, uh, maybe 100, 150 foot diameter circular pool of clear water. And one half of it is a uh, uh, sandy beach. And the other half is like a 20 foot high rim where the, the the geological, apparently it, it was probably a, a sinkhole that collapsed years ago, so only half of it is there, and a, a beautiful waterfall comes off. Uh, it comes off from the top and feeds this this pool of clear water, and then it, it goes on down to the Perdinales River. So we had gone there, I guess, uh, oh about 10 10, 10 o'clock, maybe, we got there, and so we swam a little bit, and then we were leaning against a rock. Uh, There were three of us, uh, uh, my wife and her boyfriend, (laughs) so that's a whole other story. But um, we were good friends, and we lived together, and we were sort of a famous menage a trois in Austin at the time, I suppose. And I was the shy one. But anyway, we were leaning against the rock, and suddenly I noticed, uh, we weren't talking, I noticed that the crickets stopped chirping. And, and if you've been in Texas or probably many, many different forests, you know, at night there's this cerceration ch- of chirping. Uh, I think it's like grasshoppers or crickets or something, or maybe the little frogs. But there's a murmur of sounds going on in the forest. Suddenly it was absolutely silent. It was like, whoa, you know, a deafening silence. And then there was like a, a light coming from, from, over to our right, way down where the creek drained the pool and went down toward the river through kind of a swamp. And um, this light was moving up toward us, kind of, up the creek. And we thought, oh, maybe it's somebody with a flashlight. So, you know, we talked about it the next day, but we didn't say anything at the moment. The three of us were silent, just observing the same thing. Finally, this thing came into view, and it was like a... uh, it looked to me like it was about the size of a small beach ball that was glowing and it was uh, it was sort of hovering uh, and moving up and down in a very organic sort of a way it didn't seem like a machine it was going over the creek it was following the path of the the water that the creek was draining and it came up to the pool And uh, it it was just kind of a shock to see that. Not only the sounds went silent, but suddenly there was this glowing thing. um, And it started moving uh, around the circular rim of the pool. Only half, I think I said the diameter was 150 or feet, roughly, it's a small pool, but um, this thing moved uh, maybe 20 feet above the water. And when it got to the waterfall, it stopped about 10 feet in front of the waterfall and it bobbed and dipped, uh, I think, three times. I think I remember it. It went down a real dip and went back up and then it went down and up, uh, like, not like a machine, but it seemed like something that was alive and it was glowing in a very strange way, very distinct. Um, it then continued around the pool and it came around toward where we were leaning against a rock and it stopped right above us. It stopped about 15 or 20 feet above us. And to me, I got a really good look at it. It looked like maybe um, thousands of little tiny uh, lights, tiny pinpoints of lights moving uh, within, the, within, the re- within the region of a sphere. Not, it didn't seem to go outside of this beach ball shape. But they seemed to move like uh, in a straight line, little straight lines, and then they would stop, and there were thousands of them. So it was was almost like thousands of little filament straight lines, um, all kinds of activity going on. And uh, I was just terrified. I think my heart must have stopped because, I don't know, are you going to get killed or what? (laughs) I don't know. It was just so astonishing. And then what seemed like a long time, uh, but it probably wasn't more than a couple of minutes, it was stopped. And then it then it continued back around the beach until it reached the creek, and then it slowly w- w- moved down the way it had come, and eventually it vanished in, in the forest or the you know the swampy forest on the way to the river, and suddenly all of the peepers came back on. You know it was like somebody turned the switch back on, and uh, then I mean we didn't say anything. We were kind of scared and we decided to leave, so we we left. And uh, we didn't really talk much on the way home, but the next day we talked quite a bit about it. And we decided it was, maybe this is what people call a UFO when they see a UFO. It definitely unidentified flying object, I guess, but it wasn't going very fast, but it didn't seem like a machine. It seemed like a living thing. Um, And so this kind of fed into my whole fascinating with consciousness um could this be some kind of a it certainly seemed like it was aware and it was doing something intentional and um
0: can i jump in with a question here because this is um you're describing what a lot of people describe where the animals and the sound all the insects stop and people have the experience so my question to you is and this goes to sort of like a basic theory of 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 the universe was this random because we always say um why do ufos have lights on them so you can see them it's like they want you to see them so do you think this was a random event and that goes for your whole life like you look you still look back on your life are the events of your life random or are you picking them having some control if there's multiple life uh stuff going on and that leads into the question with ufo experiencers uh 40 of all ufo experiencers claim that at one point during their experience they knew the answer to everything in the universe and that it goes with uh, near-death experience as well, where they'll claim uh, that they knew the answer to everything in the universe. So my question, I guess, would be how much of the world is random and is everything in a field and you're just tapping into the field like through an electromagnetic thing and what creates the field? So what creates the electromagnetics? What creates all this sort of stuff? Is consciousness still creating this world of electromagnetic stuff? and this idea of of of, of um, the field and of is, is the world random or is, is it just chance as evolution would say that we're sort of like biological robots in a random meaningless universe
1: well i think it's both i think there's some randomness built there's also it's not it's not totally random like many si- modern scientists claim um, i you know the i believe that there's one energy you know energy cannot be created or destroyed, they say. There's a certain fixed amount of energy. Uh, I never really went deeply into the physics of that, but I kind of took it as as, uh, maybe that's true. (laughs) Uh, I've always been kind of skeptical of everything myself, but I've observed things and tried to correlate things to to reach an understanding of things. in terms of my, I, I, I really do believe that there's a, now I believe there's an implicate order and I believe that it is full of information. And I believe all the information from the time space universe flows into it at the center everywhere. Maybe that's what gravity is all about. That the gravity is pulling things toward the center. And then at some point the information enters uh, these microscopic or, or, or larger black holes. I mean, the larger black holes probably are black holes that grew from the tiny little Planck holospheres, as I call them, or, or the uh, little holoflux uh, 10 to the minus 35 meter diameter holes that create the plenum, the uh, understructure of consciousness that projects the whole universe uh, holographically. Actually, Bohm also said that if we were to remove our, the lenses of our eyes, the whole universe would look like a hologram. Hologram. So,
0: but is consciousness uh, creating the hologram, or is the hologram creating consciousness?
1: I like consciousness. Part? Well, I believe consciousness is creating the hologram
0: and the black um, holes and everything else. Right.
1: Well, I have a feeling the the black holes have always been there. I mean, I the
0: I would say but if the consciousness is primary. How can these still be there? I don't.
1: For one thing, this is, this is the amazing thing. Outside of space time. Within the implicate order, there is no space and there is no time because space time is other than the implicate order. The implicate order, according to Bohm, is where the other dimensions are rolled up together. Uh, and so, and so the, the, uh, the implicate order actually is taking all of the information that it has and it acts like a super, super, super computer to compute the next the next uh, uh, cycle of the universe. But remember, this this Planck time constant is 10 to the 44 cycles per second, 10 to the 44 pulses a second. You know, our, our computer chips right now run at about 10 to the 14th, I think is the fastest they've gotten, 10 to the 14th pulses per second. But if the universe is creating itself and destroying itself 10 to the 44 times per second, that's an enormous uh, number. So, uh, my feeling is that the universe keeps generating itself. And, and much like you see the, the pixels on a screen create uh, images that seem to be moving and continuous, this, the implicit order is uh, through these tiny, the, the plenum of tiny holosphere dots, uh, micro black holes. They're acting like pixels and they create the three dimensional universe in time and space much as, as the flat pixels do on our uh, uh, screen monitors of our computers and, and, and video screens. Um, and so the information is, it's a cyclic thing. Whatever happens in spacetime flows back into the implicit order. Then there's a computation that happens. And then the projection, the, nec- the next projected state of the universe flows out everywhere from all of those zillions and billions and gazillions of, of tiny micro black holes that Bohm says the implicate order is in and that's where consciousness is and from which the consciousness is looking out into space time and having fun, surfing. Would,
0: would Bohm have seen consciousness as the implicate order? Because it still seems to me that if consciousness is primary, it's creating the dimensions, it's creating the black holes, it's creating whatever f- through thought. So is is there is there still this, uh, or is there a physical world separate from consciousness?
1: No, no. There's no physical world separate from consciousness. I think the, I think the Vedantic idea that the world is an illusion in a way is it is the same thing as uh, when we look at our uh, television monitor yeah. and watch Netflix. It's an illusion because it's really separate little dots moving sequentially one after the other.
0: But yeah. So then then the 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 Dimensions would be illusions as well that that it's created for whatever purpose almost like the 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 Hoffman idea is that there are icons on a desktop that you can't really see Reality itself you're only seeing the the interface to uh, Reality or consciousness which you really can't see
1: Yeah, we're almost getting above my pay grade and trying to understand (laughs) this Uh, You know does the implicate order which has always been there because it's, it's eternal There's no space and no time and so any information that flows into the implicate order is immediately available throughout the implicate order because there's no space separating it there's no time separating that information so it's operating in parallel Uh, if you understand parallel computing is things happen at the same time the new information coming in overlays everything that already is there that's never been lost the akasha and then the universe decides to pop out the next, uh, the, the next solution, the, so, the solution to every, every particle and point in the universe is recreated with a slightly new direction or configuration. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, somewhat random uh, because randomness is something that's, uh, that's built into it. Uh, and I think, you know, the universe is enjoying... Um, it's almost like each one of us is a, a channel, a different channel. We're a different frequency coming from a different place in space-time. We have different uh, backgrounds. And so we are like different channels. And the universe is channel surfing us as cognitive uh, entities. Yeah. And uh, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> well,
0: what would you say to people like you You know that now there's this big movement on AI, that consciousness is a an entity and we're going to take this consciousness and and figure out how it works and we're going to take it and put it into robots and they're going to be conscious do you do, you, do you go along with that idea that that you can actually separate consciousness or is the old idea that the consciousness is is will always be separate from uh, um, a robot unless you've got some sort of biological um, stuff you can put in the robot because the idea i think now is that consciousness is a thing we're gonna figure out what it is and then we're gonna take it and we're gonna build stuff with it and make money out of it.
1: I don't see why consciousness couldn't begin to work inside something of, you know, silicon and, and- and But you need biological
0: material, right? You need biological, it's not like- I
1: I don't think it has to be limited to biological material. Um, Because my idea
0: is that if you take a, you take all the computers of the world, you link them all together and you can wire them put electricity in them, and nothing's going to happen until there's a consciousness that programs the computers or builds computers that there always has to be that biological element that the because the, the idea to me is always the consciousness thing is is when you get enough rocks piled in a big pile and make it complex then suddenly the consciousness jumps out is consciousness primary or is it not primary
1: it is primary i believe that's yeah. the whole thing of panpsychism um but it's not limited, you know, it's not limited. That's why I tell people, um, I mean, I, I'm a fairly religious person, but I've actually been, I was brought up and confirmed as a Roman Catholic, but then I became a Hindu in my 20s, and I was I was in, inducted into a certain tradition, and then I got more interested in Tibetan Buddhism, so Trungpa inducted me into something in Vajrayana. so. And then, actually, about 12 years ago, I got fascinated by painting icons. I said I'm a painter, so I paint icons. I wanted to paint an icon so I could practice uh, a certain contemplative practices with it, and very much like doing tankas in, in, in Tibet. Um, the, the icon becomes like an archetypal um, doorway or gate into the world of archetypes. I think Jung would have understood that. So anyway, I got really so interested in icons. I went to Russia for a few weeks to study icons with some iconographers, and um, and uh, I I realized that 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 you really can. Well, I actually I, be, I finally became Russian Orthodox for a while. I was I was inducted into uh, I was they call it chrismated, and uh, but then unfortunately the Orthodox are pretty conservative. When they found out I was married to another woman they said I couldn't st- I couldn't come and st- pray with them anymore which was kind of <laughs> sad but so uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is I actually believe uh, I, I accept three very different religious traditions. I don't see why they have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, nor does anyone have to have a religious tradition, although it really is an asset if you're trying to explore consciousness I believe because you can, communicate with uh, sort of a collective unconscious or collective consciousness, uh, sort of a noospheric thing that Teilhard de Chardin uh, wrote about. One thing I haven't talked about is Teilhard's work, and that, that was a big part of my dissertation. My dissertation was uh, uh, it was on David Bohm, Carl uh, Pribram, and Teilhard de Chardin, and it was the Holoflux theory of consciousness. Um, and the... Uh, the book that I wrote afterwards, that that really is a rewrite of my dissertation, is called Subquantum Consciousness. It's kind of a thick book with lots of diagrams, um, but I really believe there's a collective consciousness that we tune into when we meditate. I, sometime yes. earlier yeah. we were talking about tuning and tuning the mind. If you are a, the first step is to quiet your laptop computer mind. What I mean by that is our normal human cognitive mind uh, is, a, is a derived form of consciousness that the primary consciousness, which I believe is like electromagnetic, flows through. And it uses uh, organic material for memory, storing memories and retrieving memories, and comparing ideas and processing sensory systems. And it's, much, it's not that different than a laptop computer or a desktop computer. And t- uh, unfortunately, people tend to think that's all that there is, that that's the real them. But the real, the real us is, is before that. It predates the development of that. that. That's like a laptop computer biological device that grows in your mother's room, and it gets booted every morning when you wake up. Um, when you meditate, uh, Patanjali teaches it, and most religions do, uh, even Western uh, Christian traditions, you enter the silence. You the silence of quieting, quiet in the activities of your computer, laptop mind. You stop. You stop. You the part of your brain that forms memories has to quiet and shut down and stop working. The part of your memory that forms words and uh, and and the normal cognitive channels that it flows through, you learn to quiet them. So you learn to just turn off your normal mind quiet it down so it stops chattering like a monkey, so that the deeper you, the deeper consciousness, the the deeper purusha, they use the Sanskrit word purusha, can begin to really listen to what's going on and get outside of itself and communicate with these other dimensions and learn to begin to tune in to other frequencies and their actual real frequencies and domains that have consciousness awareness in them. And uh, one of them is the noosphere that Teilhard de Chardin talked about, which is sort of a collective envelope around the earth of our human awareness. There's also a noosphere for frogs, say, a noosphere for dogs. There's noospheres, you know, they're different frequencies, they're different channels. And um, for trees, a certain kind of a tree species. And this kind of solves Rupert Sheldrake's uh, uh, theories, that that uh, how do things get communicated? You know, like if a animal learns a new trick, how do other species of that animal on the other side of the planet suddenly seem to learn how to do it at the same time? And he's done a lot of research on it uh, through. He calls them morphogenic fields, but I say it's just electromagnetic fields operating through a collective bandwidth of, of a certain channel, and uh, that our DNA. Sort of resonates with a very specific channel, that's specific to our species and our particular, whatever. It can even be a, it can even be more uh, localized than that. It can be a specific channel, say to, say say Trump supporters, people who love Donald Trump or whoever they love. You know, they they coalesce around a certain frequency. They go to a certain channel, and I don't, I don't mean uh, Fox News. I mean a noospheric channel, where where there's a collective identity that, uh, that tuning the mind tunes them into, and you can feel it. And when you meditate, you can actually feel um, these, other, these other channels. If, if you're lucky and you persevere enough and you practice regularly, you can actually get there through almost any religious practice that teaches even a little bit of mysticism and contemplative practices.
0: Have you experienced samadhi or nirvana, those kind of things?
1: Yes, definitely. They're just uh, they're, they're tools that the, the human biological machine has in, in chippiant in it uh, that, that, that they're like seeds that you can grow and cultivate and eventually activate. It's like the, the cutting edge sensory systems of our bodies, of our uh, collective uh, uh, neuropsychological mind. Uh, we're just on the cutting edge of what we can sense and perceive. Um, And mystics and shamans have been able to activate and use these, let's call them transceivers, since I was a ham radio person, you know, a transceiver, you can receive and also transmit. So when you receive, you know, once I was taking a very strong acid in upstate New York with a friend, we were up on a hill, and suddenly we, we were in the middle of nowhere, like 10 miles from the nearest road, and we got kind of scared because it seemed like at the foot of the hill we could hear uh, motorcycles roaring back and forth. And uh, the next morning, we, we realized that, you know, we were able to hear them, that entity, whatever it was, it was making itself known to us audibly somehow. But if we're aware of them, they're aware of us. It's like if you're aware of a whale, if you see a whale and you're a little fish, well, the whale might be able to see you And that can be the scary part that gives people bad trips when they take acid or psilocybin or ayahuasca, that that suddenly you can see these things, but uh, you're not able to hide because, you know, you're reaching out and you're touching them with your electromagnetic fields, and you're resonating with them, and there's a transfer of information during that resonance, and um,
0: so you're in their field, like you're saying that you're in the, you're vibrating at their field. So you, I think you had a uh, an experience with beings in your field in your LSD experience. So are you in the field where you just sort of vibrate at their field and you get in there, and then once you come down, you go back into your lower vibration? Is that how you see it?
1: Yes, that's in a nutshell. That's that's a fairly good, uh, yeah. The whole idea of tuning your mind is that you, through meditation you you know it's like learning to ride a bicycle it's very hard to read in words how to get your balance on a bicycle you have to do it so by meditating uh, the the first maybe the first couple of months or years even you learn to shut down your laptop mind your 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 cognitive your memory and stuff and uh, and of course a car to like this is if you shut down your memory making function of your mind and you have all these experiences under LSD or ayahuasca, it's very hard to, when you come down the next day or days after, it's hard to remember what happened because in order to get there, you have to attenuate your memory mechanism. So you're not bringing back very lucid memories. What you have to do is do these things enough time, say meditate uh, regularly every day if you can for enough months or years, Then you start to get a flavor for what happened and you start to intuit what happened, even though you don't have specific concrete memories of what happened. And it develops a faith of, well, I know what happens when I go there. You know, if if you hurt your back really bad, I used to have a bad lumbar five, a a terrible, terrible sciatica pain. I can't now remember what the pain felt like. You know, you really can't remember pain. Mm -hmm. You know it was bad, but you really can't remember the pain. Neither can you really remember things that happen when you meditate or, or even take entheogens uh, once you've sh- shut down your cognitive mind. And one thing they discovered with, uh, I, not, was it ayahuasca? Uh, I think it was psilocybin. They've done some ex- clinical experiments with psilocybin using MRI techniques to try to see what part of the brain lights up yeah. during the psilocybin technique. Mm-hmm. And they were shocked sure. to find that the, instead of lighting up, all of the areas they thought would light up go dark. Mm
0: -hmm. They get
1: quieter, quieter than normal. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of, that is one of those overlays that I believe uh, helps indicate that yes, uh, all of the yogic teachings of quieting your mind are important for reaching these, these other ways of perceiving other regions of other dimensions of reality. It kind and of makes me think, Charlie, you
2: were saying about, you know, with radio, how you were experimenting with, and other people have been experimenting with very, very low wattage, right, instead of very high, powerful wattage. And then also what you were saying about your painting method, just allowing gravity to kind of do the painting for you, you know, allow the, allow the paint to be moved around by gravity itself. You, you've been paying, it seems like, very, very close attention to... Um, to things that might seem small or insignificant to other people, you know, very nuanced things that you see a great deal of depth in things that seem very small, but actually are quite huge and expansive. And that makes me think of what you were saying about the universe, right? That it, it's both it goes outwards and it goes inwards. It kind of goes in and out of itself like that yin yang symbol that you were referencing. Yes, um, yes.
1: The, yes, the yeah. trick is to, the trick is to get out of the way. Yes. When you to get out of the way, you have to shut down your. You have to attenuate, quiet your, your normal mind, which is really loud and and you know, it 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 masks everything that's going on on a much more subtle, smaller, more powerful level. So when you're able to shut down everything, um, that that's how I paint. In fact, uh, you know the the abstract expressionists to get. To, for them to shut down their mind, they drink a lot of whiskey. They drink a hell of a lot. And Jackson Pollock, for instance. <laughs> Pollock. Well, was, you're, it, you're you're
2: you're you're segueing right into what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, first of all, Grant Grant was mentioning earlier on that we just started a series with a man named Alan Steinfeld. I'm not sure if you know who he is, but uh, he's a personality in this field, and he's very interested and very passionate in art about art. And so we've started a series about uh, abstract expressionists and you know people who are uh, mediums who have been um, have created this incredible art that that comes from somewhere else right and they talked about it coming from somewhere else that they are the conduit and then that makes me think of your passion and enthusiasm for radios because i like to think that each one of us is an antenna right we all have this ability yes yes.
1: yeah you got it yeah there's a great
2: wonderful how it all intersects with each other how everything connects to everything else i just really enjoy that and i i really hear how you're pulling all these and all these seemingly totally different things together are kind of like, uh, you know, when you're saying that religions do not have to be mutually exclusive. It made me think of the earlier example you gave of the colander that it's the same kind of concept, right? We put it in, it's one thing, it goes into this bowl but we make it into all of these different things but essentially it really is the same one thing and it's all connected to each other even though it's coming out of all these separate holes we think and therefore creating this illusion of it being separate, it really isn't. It's all coming from one source, from the same source. And I just love the connections you're making with that. And actually I'd just like to hop on to, if it's okay with you, um, your own creativity because I am thinking back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about the cycle uh, within the implicate order of how the cycle of sort of creative, create and destroy, create and dis- create and destroy over and over again. And how I'm curious how that fits into your experience of creativity and what you think of the importance of creativity in terms of understanding consciousness. Because of course, creativity is a contact modality, right? It's a way of tuning in. It's a way of activating our antenna. It's a way of, of doing that. But, um, but I feel like there's so much more depth in creativity that I myself want to learn more about. And because you have such a long history of working on that on a personal level, and you also play accordion, which I think is so cool, um, I'm very curious to know how creativity for you fits into um, accessing all of this information, all this knowledge, you know, being tuned in and and understanding all of these things. What is the power of creativity in that for you?
1: Well, I I, I have to mention uh, one of the best books I ever read. Uh, I was about 25 or 26 in New York trying to paint on my, my own and learning about consciousness, meditation, and painting. Uh, I also got a complete set of Jung's works. I, it was a lot of money for me, but uh, I was fascinated by Carl Jung, uh, especially his volume, Art and the, and the Collective Unconscious. But I read also one of the books by one of his students, uh, Eric Neumann, called Art and the Collective Unconscious. And it was an eye-opener for me because he, he went through uh, uh, three, three different cases, three different artists uh, in, historically, and his theory was that, that the collective unconscious flows through the artist uh, if the artist can get out of the way, if the artist can, can kind of drop their own ego and, and just become a, a conduit to let the energies of creativity flow through them from the collective unconscious. So now I would say f- from out of the center, the implicate order that, the, that, that, the, that the, this thing is, this existence we're in, this whole universe is, is creative. What is creativity? It's the flow of energy uh, trying to do new things and to communicate and to experience. And so uh, I think that's why the abstract expressionists learned that drinking uh, let them shut down their ego and their laptop mind so that this collective energy would flow through them into their canvas. And so I actually went through a stage for a year or two and I drank way too much when I painted. I would, and it worked, <laughs> but I would also, I would drink and smoke uh, cannabis too. And I would do some amazing things, you know, that I didn't remember how I did them, but something did them. And I think it was the creative energy flowing through me. And uh, I remember when I was in, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia for many years. And sometimes I would speak with some of the Saudi friends. Uh, they. know, we weren't supposed to talk about religions, but I remember once uh, saying that, um, I said, you know, I believe that Islam is the one true religion, and they would, their eyes would get real big and say, really, wow, I would say, yes, I also believe Christianity is the one true religion, and I also believe, you know, every religion is like a different flower, and you can't really say that one flower, if God hadn't allowed all the religions to develop, you know." It's just like letting all the flowers develop; they're all beautiful. So, uh, God is like a the creative energy is unlimited in what it can do. So, why can't it have multiple religions, all of them being true? Uh, to the extent that you believe in them, they are real. And so, you, we're living uh, in this interpenetrating multitude of dimensions, uh, where different people are living in different universes. In a way, it's almost like every single um, tiny uh micro black hole is the origin of its own universe, and it's, it's, it's projecting the universe out from that center. And all of these different centers are intersecting in a really beautiful, uh, cosmic, uh, symphonic way. Um, so I, I, I stopped the drinking, uh, because I was getting feeling kind of sick drinking too much in my late 20s. Uh-huh. And I shifted pretty much to just uh, cannabis. And uh, I do smoke cannabis when I paint. I meditate first, but I always would do it also ritualistic. I start painting on a full moon night. And mm. um, I just try to uh, do it as a meditative thing. I, I, I start out by, by a blank canvas. It's the hardest thing uh, for a writer to have a blank page, or a painter to have a blank canvas. So you get up the courage to throw something on, you know, pick a colors and 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 pick pick the viscosity. I would mix the paint with something maybe to make it thicker or thinner. And I would pour it or throw it on the canvas. And then I would say, well, I need to fix that up a little bit. So it becomes a series, a dialectic of, of, of doing something and then trying to fix it. You do something and then you react to it by trying to make it better, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's uh that that's um I so guess, just
2: like the constant the constant process of self-improvement
1: yes and at some point uh it takes on a life of its own you almost feel like you're in the flow there's some energy flowing through you from beyond you actually i believe it's deep within you uh with very quantum levels it's radiating out through your apparatus into the paint and according to eric neumann the the goal of uh, This collective consciousness doing art was to communicate with the 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 wider human population through art and the art was the was sort of the noosphere's noospheric way of of community you know saying hello to human beings so uh you know i love books and and so you can get you can I have so many books that I still haven't read them all. (laughs) But you always, you know, you can find something that correlates with something else that you've studied and read.
2: Oh yeah, it's so easy to just go right down that rabbit hole. Because when when you understand how, when you start understanding or realizing how everything is interconnected, it's so exciting. And then it's just endless, the possibilities of what you can learn, what you can read. I mean, I have a bajillion books that I haven't read yet. (laughs) So I can kind of relate to what you're saying. Um, I think Grant might have a question for you, if that's all right.
0: Yeah, we're sure. coming up. We're coming up on two hours, where we wanted to cut it off. We can. I'd like to talk to you again um, down the road because you've got so much material. Um, basically, two little simple ones—a simple question, or hopefully a simple question—and that is, um, I've written a number of books. You've written a whole pile of books. Uh, Sinead still has to write her her first book. So, what would you say for a person who's writing books? in terms of um, getting it done, uh, where to start, that sort of thing. And then the final question I have for you is, uh, when you look back on your life, uh, what would you say to someone in terms of why are we here and what's it all about?
1: Um, I love that question. Okay, in terms of writing uh, books or or painting paintings, uh, I, I pretty much use the same technique I discovered writing uh, my dissertation even um, you start out and you have a blank a blank page you maybe you don't have a good idea yet so you I, I write something that I'm really interested about i, I, I and then I, I realize that I need to say more than what I just said so I add something to it and okay. then I, I I go back to it as if I were doing a painting and uh, creating problems that need to be solved and mm. um, I, I don't I don't start with a rigid outline that this is what I'm going to do. I go into it as an adventure uh, that I'm, you know, that I'm, I, I wanted to try to express things. Um, you know, I don't feel that I have really said anything really new in any of my work. But what I've done is I've connected the dots uh, among, among many, many interdisciplinary types of material that normally people wouldn't wouldn't connect because I mean, not many engineers would read uh, you know, Vedanta or study Sanskrit, I suppose. So I've been lucky in, in the way that I've been able to absorb things from different traditions and yeah, different exactly. subjects. And then, um, you know, one thing that fascinated me in engineering school was uh, they, they kind of drilled into us pattern recognition. What is pattern recognition? It means you should always look for a pattern. Look for a pattern. Look look for ways things can be related and overlaid. You know, the things come in threes, or they come in fours, or you know, is this a process that seems that there's something similar process on some other other subject? And uh, by it's almost like data mining. You, uh, the more I read, the more I absorb, the more I have information in my stew pot to stir it all together and kind of bring out a new flavor, and. So that's kind of how I write, I think. Uh, um, the other question, I think I forgot what you were saying.
0: <laughs> the, the question about what, what, what's life all about in terms of you've written a lot of stuff, looked at a lot of stuff, why are we here and uh, what are we supposed to be doing and how do you put that all together?
1: Yeah, something I wish I could uh, have instilled in my son and daughter, but I don't think I have. They're, you know, my, my son is a computer engineer and my daughter is a f- clinical psychologist. Um, but somehow they didn't inherit my love of trying to, of what I would call uh, s- psychic self development. I, I, I maybe because of my being transgender, you know, I think in early on, very early, like four or five years old, I wanted to understand myself. And then, uh, as I got older, I realized that there were a lot of uh, subjects and techniques that taught you how to develop and evolve your own ways of uh, your own psyche your own sensitivity your own way of seeing things uh, and then in yoga and uh, and Teilhard de Chardin even I think Teilhard was one of the first people who wrote about the evolution of consciousness he got really uh, in trouble with the Catholic Church because he wrote about that consciousness was evolving and, and that uh, and I found that fascinating so I have had that as my as my main, um, driving force was to evolve my own consciousness, hopefully to evolve it to where I can understand maybe why I was put here as a transgender person and, and, and why I was put here as a person at all and, and why any human is here. And I think it's to re- eventually reconnect back to the source. Uh, at, at some point, let the source, the implicate order, flow through you um, uh, and not only during meditation, but maybe during waking hours too. And I, 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 I'm getting a little bit better at that. For instance, you know, walking in the forest, I'll see a tree that's maybe 200 feet away yeah, down the road. I'll say, okay, I will try to empty my mind completely until I reach that tree. I will try to stop thinking as Shelley and stop memorizing and not even think about what I'm doing. Just walk and be aware. Be totally aware and let the universe flow through me, at least until I get up to that tree. So that's kind of a simple practice that I do when I go for walks. And I'm um, I here. I I'm still not sure why I'm here, but, you know, I, maybe it's to write these books and write and and paint these paintings. I, I have some paintings that I really love so far. I haven't found a, a an art gallery, but then I'm not much of a I don't push them. I, I'm so busy reading and studying and painting more paintings. uh, And I live way out in the middle of nowhere, so there's not many art galleries around here. If anyone's listening, I have paintings on my website, shelleyjoy.net, and I'd be glad to get to a gallery.
2: (laughs) We will be including the link to your website, by the way, when this is posted online. We'll make sure that your website um, link is underneath the video because this is just so fascinating. Shelly, you are like a renaissance. Amazing, and I feel like I could keep eating up all of this information forever um, I particularly just want to say because we're wrapping up now that I really appreciate how you have tied in your own personal search for you know who you are why you are the way you are you know I think this is a question that so many of us in this field and outside of it too, can relate to, you know, what are we here for? What is the purpose? Why am I the way that I am? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a deaf person. I've thought so much about that. Why do I have significant hearing loss? What is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning from this? You know, how, what does this bring to my life? And identity is such an important part of how we understand ourselves and how we develop our, our awareness and our consciousness. So I, I really appreciate you speaking about that personal journey of yours, because of those reasons. And also also because representation is incredibly important and representation is incredibly powerful and people need to see themselves represented out there, right? To, to have that sense of validation that, um, that you know, we're okay the way that we are and there's other people out there like us who can understand us and that there's a reason why this is all happening. You know, that feeling of connection with other people that we can relate to is incredibly important. So I'm grateful for that. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Sinead, and thank you, Grant. Uh, I want to ask you something, Sinead. Uh, sure. As a deaf person, uh, earlier this year, uh, well, for for decades, one of my main practices in meditation was was uh, called Nada Yoga, Nada Yoga, listening the yoga of the inner sounds. I, I've written about it in several of my books. How I first heard some high pitched inner sounds within my brain, like high frequencies, located in different spots, and by focusing on them, they get louder. And then I discovered there's there's a whole uh, yoga uh, school uh, called Nada Yoga or uh, 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 Shabda Yoga, and okay. but this year, in January, after I had a, a failed tooth implant that uh, was causing a lot of pain, they removed it, like three days later, I suddenly had what I'm sure they call tinnitus, like an amazingly loud, thousands of little tiny sounds of different frequencies in my brain area. And it, it, at first, it was very claustrophobic, and I I couldn't sleep very well for for weeks. I mm-hmm. was really horrible. But then I discovered that when I meditate, it's an amazing uh, phenomena that helps me go deeper into meditation. Um, I, I can focus on my heart and hear different sounds slightly, uh, different parts. So I wondered, do you hear tinnitus at night when you're?
2: I I do not I do not but I do relate to what you're talking about for a couple of reasons um I I had my own kind of huge awakening in summer 2019 when I was pretty much slingshotted into this field I had not been part of it at all I'm a newbie here um but a big part of what happened was that I I had just had my second cochlear implant surgery on my on my right ear and I noticed that um I've had sort of unusual experiences all my life. So every once in a while I get, I would have something odd happen and I would have a sense like there's something unusual about this. You know, I should pay attention to this, whatever this is, this is not yeah. quite the usual thing. So I had already had my first cochlear implant surgery five years earlier. <clears throat> and that had been a totally different experience. What What happened with this one um, was that I was having these incredibly strong uh, I thought at the time were auditory hallucinations, like really, really intense, high-pitched and reverberative sounds that yes, yes, um, yes. yeah, that that I also recognized too. And and what made what they made what made them stand out to me was a couple of things. One was that they happened very intensely and very often and often all day to the point that I would get very dizzy and almost pass out occasionally. It was yeah. that strong but that coincided almost exactly with my awakening. And then right after my awakening happened, they went away. And then there was a period of time after that when I kept hearing uh, this, I kept having this experience over and over again of hearing very loud kind of howling or blowing wind. And that scene that was also tied into other experiences I ended up having. So there's some definite interesting correlations with sound and awareness and psychic, uh, you know, tuning into your psychic abilities or tuning into your connectivity that I think has a lot to do with vibration. Um, and yeah, and, and it's, I'm very interested in that. I want to learn more about that. So I can relate to you a little bit in that
1: way. Yeah, Yeah. You know, Blavatsky wrote a great book, the voice of the silence. But I always mm-hmm. impressed me mm-hmm. quite a bit too. So there's a lot to that. Uh, I'm fascinated by it. I think yeah, I think it does connect you to other dimensions in some ways.
2: Yes, yes, it's so exciting just learning more and more and more about how all of these things do connect. And as you were saying, you know the patterns that are out there that we can recognize. Um, everywhere, right, that, that demonstrate in, in, in material form often the interconnectivity between things. For example, um, so I'm deaf and I've had cochlear implant surgery and the cochlea looks like a shell, right? It's a sort of in this swirl pattern. Yeah. And so shells are, of course, biological in the ocean. We come from the ocean. We are partially made of the ocean. We are also made partially of stardust. Um, But then that spiral shell, you know, is found in so many examples in nature, ferns, all kinds of different things. And then also exists in um, really, really ancient symbology, which I'm sure you know of, right? That spiral that we see over and over and over again in many, many cultures, many ancient cultures all over the world. It's in cave paintings. It's in, it's all over the place. Um, So things like that, I really also really, really enjoy. So I was, I was happy you were pointing that out also.
1: Yeah. I gave my name Shelley because of that. (laughs) I renamed myself you know I had to my name used to be Michael years ago
2: (laughs) Shelly it's such a joy ironically because your last name is Joy talking to you and just really really truly a pleasure this has been such a fabulous interview and like Grant I would love to speak to you again I just think you have such a massive amount of knowledge to contribute and um Thank you. Thank you three times, as Grant would say. <clears throat> thank you three times. So much, much, much appreciated. Please come back. We'll do a part two with you and um, just continue this amazing journey.
1: Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Grant. And I'll send you a whole bunch of pictures you might want to put on the uh, Beautiful. YouTube video. Please do.
0: Uh, we'll do that. Too.
1: Okay. Have a great evening.
0: I appreciate me it. Too. Love thank you all. bye. Bye-bye. Bye
1: bye. Bye. <laughs>